journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Welcome to our trip. I hope your suitcase is packed and your chumash is in hand. And you are ready to join me on a trip of a lifetime. We are studying the book of Genesis. We are on Parshas Vayera. And we are learning the authentic Bible. We are looking into the actual verses in its original Hebrew. And um, I'm here to be with you for the next hour to share with you some of the wisdom that the Torah, which has been the eternal book for the Jewish people, the guiding light for the Jewish people, I'm here to share it with you. And um, tell you a little bit about what our rabbis have to say in the various verses. For those that have been following me, we have been studying Parshas Vayera. It's a very, very interesting Parsha, um, all to do primarily with Abraham. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been concentrating on Abraham's, so to speak, wayward nephew, Lot. Lot, um, uh, who just managed to survive the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah along with his two daughters. As we know in previous um, podcasts, we spoke about the fact that uh, his wife turned into a pillar of salt. If you're interested in that, you always can go back um, on the Chai FM website and you can catch up on any part that you have missed. Right now, we're going to be zooming back into what Lot did after uh, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or rather, we should say, what happened to Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's quite an enigmatic and very, very strange number of verses. And as we go through it, we will unpack certain lessons. One of them that will be a lesson that we need to understand now in the time of quarantine with coronavirus and really on the state of the world as it is. So join me if you have a Chumash in front of you. We're in chapter 19. We are going to look, <clears throat> I think, at verse 30. We're going to start on verse 30, 3-0, which reads as follows. Vaya'al Lot Mitzoar. Lot leaves, he, he, he ascends from the city of Tzoar. Vayeshev Bahar, and he goes and lives in the mountain. Ushtei benotav imo, his two daughters are with him. Ki yare lashevet b'tzoar, because they were afraid to remain in Tzoar. Vayeshev b'ma'ara, and he lives in a cave. Hu ushnei benotav, he and his two daughters. So let's just unpack that a little bit so we just understand from a contextual point of view where we are at. There were five cities that were found in the plain, and the two primary ones is Stom and Gomorrah. And um, when the angel came to say to Lot that they were going to destroy the cities, they also included three other cities, one of them being the city of Tsoar. When Lot was running away, he beseeched the angel to save one of the cities because he would have nowhere else to live. We need to understand that this is 4,000 years ago. There was no GPS. There was no Google Maps. And for Lot and his two wives, they were very much 
aware of what and where civilization was found at that point in time. So it, it probably was a very, very scary feeling for them to know that their existence and the cities around them were going to get completely destroyed because then where else would they be to live? So they ran away to the city of Tsar. But we were told, we were told that when they came to Tsar, they were afraid to settle there because it was close to Stom. And since Lot had seen the catastrophe that had struck Stom, he was terrified. And so he and his daughters came up with a plan, let's run into the mountains and let's hide in a cave. And that's essentially what this verse is telling us, is that he ascended from Tsar and he went to the mountains, him and his two, two daughters, and they found a cave. And this is where what seemingly seemed to be for them, and particularly for his two daughters, the last three remaining people um, of civilization, that was where they, they, they were holding. And you can just imagine, <coughs> excuse me, as we, as we are sitting in quarantine and we feel very disconnected from the rest of the world and very isolated, you can just imagine the fear and the, the worry about not only um, are they isolated and by themselves, but perhaps they are the last remaining human beings on the planet. Of course, we know that they weren't because Abraham was still around and there were still a lot of other people elsewhere, but I guess due to the lack of communication and understanding, this is where they were. And even if, they, if, if you could argue that um, they should have known intellectually there was still you know, Uncle Avraham or Great Uncle Avraham for lots to daughters. Nevertheless, we have seen for ourselves that um, we could see how much fear plays in our minds now that we are we're living with coronavirus. Um, I'm sure that many of you out there have experienced it yourself or experienced it with somebody that you know, that they're completely convinced they've got COVID-19. Um, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety, and really when they go, it's just simply the flu or some other um, benign uh, ailment at this point in time, and not the COVID-19. But we can become so frightened in our minds that for them certainly that was their reality. An interesting thing then happens. We're looking now at verse 31 of chapter 19. The eldest sister says to the younger sister, Our father is old. And there is no man to come to us as is the way of the world. What were they saying? It seems that our father is the last existing male on the planet. And if we are to survive and procreate, how are we going to? Because there's only one male left. Lecha, says the young, the oldest to the youngest. Lecha nashke et avinu yayim. Let us um, give wine. Let's inebriate our father with wine. Let us lie with him so that we can give life to offspring from our father. So um, what, what they're basically saying is that 
they all they they felt very very stuck. They felt very um, nervous about the future existence of this world. They saw their father as the only living male around, and they actually came. The rabbis, most rabbis, hold that they came with the highest motives um, as to why they wanted to procreate with their father, which generally um, in Torah law is considered incest and is forbidden. One is not allowed to live physically with one's closest relatives. So what happened? Vatashkena et avihem yayin balayla. They gave wine to their father that night. Vatavo habechira. And then the oldest uh, daughter came, Vatishka Vesadviha, and she lay with her father, Veloyada Beshikba Ufkuma. The father was so inebriated, he did not know whether she lay down or that she got up. Vayehimi Maharat, and in the morning, Vatomeh Habihira Elatsaira, the oldest girl tells the youngest girl, Hein Shakhti Emish Esavi, last night I lay with our father. Nashkenu yain gam halayla. Let us get him drunk again tonight. Uvoi shichvi imo. You then can sit and lie with him. Unechaye ma'avinu zara, so that you too can get a, you can get seed or you can get offspring from our father. Vatashkena balayla hahu et avihem yain. So again, they gave wine to their father that night. The takem hatzira, the youngest got up at tishkav imo, veloyada b'shichva uvkuma, uvkuma, and she too lay with her father, and her father did not know, really, in essence, what had happened that she had laid with him or that she had got up. How incredibly enigmatic, and how incredibly. Uh, nerve-wracking this is. We're going to go for a bit of a an ad break. When we get back, we're going to have to unpack this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. And um, we actually read some quite uh, interesting verses before the break where we see the two daughters of Lot conspiring, so to speak, Against, against him, against his knowledge and against his, his will, um, simply because they felt that if they didn't, um, they would land up being childless and that would be the end of humanity. And as I mentioned, um, according to most opinions, the girls had the highest motives, um, in it. And it's, it's very interesting. There's a few questions we can ask. The first is, where did they get the wine? Like they certainly didn't, you know, decide to look at the Chardonnay that was left in the, in, in, in the cupboard before they ran away from Stom. Um, they left with nothing in their hands. They were told to look forward, not even to look back. Where suddenly did they have enough wine in order to inebriate their fathers? So our rabbis teach us that um, there were there could there could have been two options. The main option that was given was that, as we know and what and as we have learned in, uh, previously, that the places of Sodom, Gomorrah, and its adjacent cities were cities of immorality 
and cities of debauchery and cities of incest. And there was a lot of partying that was going on. Alcohol played a tremendous, tremendous part in the negativity of the city. We're also told that the, the place where all these cities were, were a really fertile place. And uh, the rabbis explained that a lot of vineyards grew. And one of the things that came to be produced very cheaply was, in fact, wine. So we are told that because the land was so bountiful and because wine was so plentiful um, and was produced really at a very, very cheap rate, the, the Sodomites and their fellow men did not have enough place, enough cellars to uh, store the caskets of wine. And so they would store the wine up in the mountain in cool caves, like the excess wine um, was found there. And because they, 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 they did that, um, the girls were able to get wine very, very easily. There is another opinion that they stored the barrels of wine in the mountain caves because they didn't want that it should be stolen. But nevertheless, there, there was a, a, a plentifulness and a, and a, a large amount of wine, alcohol available. And so the daughters made use of that and they, they, uh, they inebriated their fathers. Now, let's just talk about their motives a little bit more. Um, as we said, most rabbis hold that they had the highest motives. And very interestingly, we see that both of them become impregnated and both of them each give birth to a son. We are now going to go and look at um, the verse 38. But Lot So that's 37. That the two daughters of Lot became pregnant. Ben, the oldest one, gives birth to a son. Moav. She calls him Moav. Who Avi Moav Arayom, and he became the father of a huge nation. We know him as today the nation of Moab, the Moabites. The young girl also um, gave birth to a son, Ben Ami. She called him Ben Ami, and who Avi Ben Amon Adhayom. And from him, we know that the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, um, exist even to this very day. So here we see um, two daughters um, acting altruistically, it seems, in a state where they do not understand that there is other people still existing in civilization, and they go ahead and impregnate themselves in order to proliferate and continue and procreate and continue the human, the, the human chain. Now, this is where it becomes very enigmatic, because the oldest son, Moab, um, obviously becomes a very, very great nation. But we are told that Moab is actually, in a sense, inextricably linked to something that is very fundamental in Judaism, and that is that we believe in Mashiach, we believe in a Messiah. One of the important qualities and characteristics that 
the Messiah and he should reveal himself quickly today, one of the things we're going to check, we're going to check his ID document. We're going to check his genealogy because in order for him to qualify as Mashiach, he needs to be a grandson, great, great, great one, but a grandson of King David. He has to come from the house of David, from the lineage of royalty as we know it. But if you trace back the, the, the lineage of King David through his uh, maternal side, you will see that, in fact, his great-grandmother was no other than Ruth, Ruth. The whole story of Megillat Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, the, in, the, the famous um, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship um, of, and the famous wo- words that Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I go, your people are my people, etc., etc. Now, Ruth was a convert. And from which nation did she convert? We're told she actually, her great-great-great-great-grandfather all the way back was none other than Moab, this son that was born to the oldest daughter of Lot and <clears throat> of Lot and his daughter Moab. And really the question that, that needs to be asked was, well, if incest and if this type of behavior is not um, something that we 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 uh, we condone. In fact, to be condemned in its highest levels, incest, as I said, is not allowed between family members. How is it that when we trace the lineage all the way through, and we are now looking at a a person who is going to come and redeem us and bring the whole world to redemption, and he in fact comes from such a Strange um, uh, relationship all the way back in its in its uh, its in its uh, conception, so to speak. How, how do we how do we reconcile that? I'm going to leave that question because it is a question that we need to explore in other ways, and then come back to it and uh, and 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 explain it. So. Just for you to know uh, this lineage and how how important it is was. What I want to concentrate on now um, is really a whole idea which is pertinent to today in a discussion today, um, and that is what is the Jewish viewpoint about wine, about the drinking of alcohol, in particular wine, but the drinking of alcohol. Um, why is it pertinent today? Because as we know, one of the things that um, the government has prohibited and mandated to be such is that there is no selling of alcohol allowed. Now, I don't think anybody in the 21st century um, does not understand or does not know the bad effects of alcohol and what it does on our society. There is no question that it, it, it impacts badly. And in fact, what government is seeing, and it has been seen across the world, that violent behavior and, 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 um, and the rate of murder, rape, etc., um, and domestic violence has dropped 
significantly. I think that uh, South Africa, known as one of the murder capitals of the world, actually showed a significant reduction in murder. Now, uh, one of the, the reasons given behind that is not only there's a lockdown, you're not allowing the guys to roam around, but there is no alcohol to fuel the the negativity and the, the, the bad behavior around. And so one would think that if alcohol is such a, if alcohol has such a bad effect on society, then certainly from a Jewish point of view, we would need to, if we wanted to be holy, we wanted to be moral, we wanted to be integrous, certainly wine and alcohol in general should be an absolute no-no. We should, we should, we should have one of the third, uh, one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, um, should be thou shalt not ever take wine or alcohol or any such type, uh, drink. Um, and even more in that argument, we can see that there is many, many times that we can go and prove how bad wine really is. Let's go back to the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, we are told, were put in the Garden of Eden in a place that was completely prosperous, that was beautiful. Uh, we could partake of the whole world, and there was just one tree in the middle of the garden that they were not allowed. Now, there's many, many opinions about it, but one of them is that, in fact, that tree was wine, and what, in fact, had happened was that uh, that Eve had imbibed of the wine, and she gave that wine to Adam. And what happened when they both um, became inebriated with the wine is that they realized post facto that they had transversed the, the one and only commandment God had given them. And I guess we could say the rest is history. Death was brought upon the world. Man had to work by the sweat of the brow. A woman had to suffer in pregnancy. And, hey, we are here 5,780 years later still trying to rectify that um, deed, which some rabbis hold the opinion that, in fact, it was a grapevine. So we can see the bad effects of, of wine. A little bit further, and we've discussed this on High FM as well, when we did Parashat Noah, we know that when Noah came out of the ark um, into a brand new world, he had just seen the destruction of a corrupt um, world. He comes out with his wife and his four sons and their wives. And what does he do? The very first thing that he does is that he plants a vineyard and he becomes inebriated. And again, we are brought to the attention of how he defaces himself or how Ham, his son, defaces himself, how the other two sons, Shem and Yafet, have to come in backwards and cover their father's nakedness. Not a, a pretty story, not a pretty sight, not a pretty ending. If you're still not convinced, we're now going a couple of chapters later, and we see over here that in order um, for uh, things to happen, the daughters of Lot get in completely inebriated, and um, they 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 perform incest. And again, this is not something, as I said initially, that is mandated by the Torah. 
So we have enough evidence on the one side of the scale to say, look, you want to live a moral, integrous life? Well, that's it. Certainly, wine and alcohol cannot be part of it, and statistics really, really have shown right throughout the annals of history that when wine is free-flowing and people are allowed to get drunk, we do not have a pretty sight on our hand. We see the world degraded into immorality, into adultery, into incest, into very bad behavior, etc., etc., etc. But then if you, if you want to actually don another hat and you want to come to the defense of Torah, we can actually look at the various uh, things that we uh, celebrate in Judaism and, and realize that in fact Torah, I mean that wine is very much part of our rituals. We make Kiddush on wine on Friday night. We make Kiddush on wine Shabbat day. We make Kiddush on Havdalah, the, the prayer that separates Shabbat from the rest of the world. On Pesach, we drink four cups of wine. In the temple, there was a thing called a wine libation. At a bris, we have wine. At a funeral, I'm sorry, not at a funeral, at a wedding, we have wine. So if wine is so bad, why is it that the Torah actually mandates that that we should drink it? Surely, surely the, the bad benefits certainly outweigh the good benefits. So what is this all really about? Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, I guess you're sitting in suspense. So what is it? Is wine good or is it bad? Well, if you open up the Gemara and many, many other commentators in um, in Torah, you will see that a lot of um, heed is given to people not to get drunk and not to lose themselves in the alcohol. Um, we are told that that anybody who overindulges in drink harms himself both physically and uh, and spiritually, and that um, one should um, be very very careful because one of the the side effects of getting drunk is that one will tend to behave in a very very negative manner. We're told that a drunk will eventually lose all his money. Um, this is and become impoverished. This is what King Solomon says: when one sets his eye on the cup, he walks straight. Um, which uh, the rabbi is going to explain that once he sets his eye on the cup, he'll walk straight into his house and he'll find absolutely nothing. We are told also, going back to the whole situation with Noah, that um, we are told there that anybody who over imbibes in wine suffers 13 woes, and there is an entire very interesting um, play on words, which I do not have the time to go through right now, but uh, the rabbis learned from Noah's dr- drunkenness that he who imbibes wine suffers 13 woes, and it is uh, looked down upon. Even on Purim, and this was another area which I didn't mention, we are told we should be drinking until we do not know the difference be- between Mordechai and Haman. Um, nevertheless, we are told not to overindulge because we can land up being very profane, um, that we, we will land up 
doing a whole lot of stuff um, that in, in consequence will actually bring even worse sin upon us. We're told very interestingly a story about a Jew who was once taken prisoner by heathens and he was given the choice of committing one of three sins. They said to him, either you can drink the wine that was offered to idols or you can have, you have to lie with one of the women and commit adultery or you have to worship idols. So this Jew thought to himself, well, you know, bowing down to idols is a, is capital punishment in Torah. I'm not going to idol worship. And same, same thing applies to adultery. I'm not going to lie with the woman. So I'll take the least of it all and I will drink the wine of the idols. This way I'll be guaranteed that I will not commit such a terrible sin. Anyway, he drank the wine, but they gave him so much wine that when he became drunk, they got him to lie with another woman, commit adultery, and they got him to bow down to the idols because he was so drunk he didn't realize what he was doing. When he got sober again and he realized what he had done, he wept and said, it would have been better for me to have bowed to the idol or to have lived with one of the women because then I would have committed one sin. Now I have committed three. And he vowed never to drink wine again. Um, and so the rabbis went and said, no sin is as bad as drunkenness, since drunkenness can lead to all sorts of depravity. So there you got it. Like there is an overwhelming amount of uh, of comment in the Torah about how bad it is to drink wine. So why do we use wine? Well, there actually is something very, very potent about wine, something very, very positive about wine. We told that wine has the same gematria, yayin. Yayin is the word for wine, yud yud nun, that it has the same gematria, it has the same numerical value as sod, as secrets. Okay? Yayin, yud yud nun is 70, and the word for secret, sod, samak vav dalit, is also 70. So on one hand, we are told that when one drinks wine, he reveals all his secrets. But on a much deeper level, we are told that when we sanctify wine and we drink it in an appropriate fashion, what it will do is that it will loosen um, us up in such a way that we will be able to actually understand certain realities and certain ideas that we wouldn't necessarily be able to understand um, if we remained in our stiff, finite, finite boxed attitude. And so the rabbis allowed the drinking of wine, though they speak a lot about the wine being diluted. And here they're not talking about 100% dilution, nor are they talking about you drinking wine in its fullest, but to dilute a little bit of the wine with water so that the wine can go in and do what it needs to do to you without the harmful effects of, of, of everything else. And uh, we are told that there were 70 scholars that made up the Sanhedrin, and uh, they, they were scholars that understood sod. Sod is equal to wine, and so wine does have a place, but it has a place in, in, in a measured environment, meaning when we pick up the wine on Friday night, on Shabbat morning, at Havdalah, at a bris, at a wedding, 
at, at Pesach, even at Purim. And we make a blessing and we sanctify and we drink of that wine. It is of sufficient measure in order to shift our paradigm somewhat and allow us to connect to much, much deeper things, the secrets of, of, of the universe and the mysteries of Torah. And there were rabbis um, who, who partook of wine in a measured way in order for them to explore the world in a much, much uh, greater way. One very, very famous rabbi is a, the Talmud talks about him, Rabbi Bana. He was an incredible sage, and he was almost known as a savant. He was he was able to read into things. There's a tremendous amount of stories about him. I'm going to just explain one very cl- uh, quickly. Once a man died, and he left a will. And in his will, there was two sentences. It said, I am leaving a barrel of soil to my eldest son, a barrel of bones to my second, and a barrel of tufts to my third. And nobody could actually understand what the father was talking about. So this, they came to this Rabbi Bana, and they asked him to interpret. And he said, tell me, does your father's estate include houses, fields, livestock, garments, and they apply, they replied in the affirmative. And he said, ah, he now understands. He said, the barrel of soil that he leaves to the older son, that is talking about all the houses and the fields. The barrel of bones, that refers to the livestock. That has to go to the second son. And the barrel of tufts, that refers to all the clothing, which is to be left to the third son. And this is the way the estate should be divided. And he went and said, your father was wise. He did not wish to um, reveal his wealth even after he died, and therefore he did what he did. And to this, the rabbis understood that this Rabbi Bana had the ability to see beyond the physical and the practical and the logical and the what you see is what you get. And in fact, he was able to look beyond and and give very, very um, deep, sagely advice on many, many um, um, occasions. And unfortunately, because time is short, I cannot go and uh, go into the many other stories that you did. What we do need to do now is actually go for a break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, welcome back. And we've just got a couple of minutes. So I think that I have to explain to you then how do we understand that the Messiah is coming back all the way back in its lineage from what seems to be an incestuous relationship? Well, it just based on the very little that we managed to explore in the time that we had, wine in and of itself is not necessarily a negative thing um, because it does open up to very, very deep realities and it opens up to the secrets and the things that we do not perceive with the physical eye. The rabbis maintain that the behavior of Lot's two daughters was in fact virtuous they were um, in a place of, so to speak, pikuach nefesh, that they had to save themselves, and for them they had no option. And therefore, them using the wine in this manner in order to ensure the, ex- the continuous existence of civilization is something which they give uh, credence to and which they allow. Um, I think that we can and should look at 
the entire idea of the Messiah and the redemptive process also as something that is beyond our understanding and beyond the physical uh, knowledge that we have right now. Um, I believe actually that the Messiah is knocking on the door. Um, our world through this COVID-19 pandemic is going to um, open the open the world to new possibilities, to to a world of friendship, of peace, of harmony, of health, and all the good things. Um, and certainly, we will gain even more understanding about the the messianic redemption and process. A by by, by learning about it and obviously by us experiencing it, then it will be put into perspective why Lot's daughters did what they did. So in the meantime, we understand what the government has done in terms of banning alcohol, alcohol for just plain pleasure, and for social uh, interaction is certainly not something that the Torah looks positively about, we do use alcohol, particularly wine, when we are sanctifying things, sanctifying the day of the Shabbat, sanctifying the holiday of, of, of Pesach, sanctifying a child going into the covenant of Abraham, and sanctifying the, the existence or the start of a new Jewish home. So we use it in measured um, aspects, but other than that, we do not use it as a thing that we can just simply use for our pleasure. I hope that this has given you a little bit more deeper insight, and I thank you all for joining me on Chai FM. Remain tuned to Learning Torah on the airwaves, and please, God, I will be back at the same time next week with yet another chapter from our most incredibly amazing Bible. Have a wonderful week.